This week on New Mexico in Focus, what covering conflict elections in other countries can teach America about defining political differences. A lot of the left, of course, disavows Antifa, really doesn't like what they're doing. A lot of the right thinks very poorly of the Proud Boys. And police in Albuquerque get whacked by an overtime audit and an independent monitor. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. After months of political uncertainty, we maybe deserve a break. The line sits down this week to talk about the election's aftermath and its implications for New Mexico's political picture. We also chat about the COVID-19 spike that is overwhelming New Mexico and about the Albuquerque Police Department. We'll look back in our land at the impact of the border wall and look ahead to our continuing coverage of pollution in and around New Mexico military installations. Here's the line. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. Today is Friday, November 13th, 2020. Lots of breaking news today that we want to touch on right away because we taped the show yesterday, so these had not happened. Uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham came out Friday afternoon to announce a reset, as she called it, of the shelter-in-place order from early on in the COVID-19 pandemic. What does that mean? It means no travel other than absolutely most essential uh, needs. If you're an essential employee, a healthcare worker, if you need to go to the grocery store, but otherwise we are supposed to stay at home for at least the next two weeks. After that, things will be reevaluated, and they've actually created a county-by-county color-coded system that will dictate how things are reopened and when after the end of the month, November 30th. Of course, this is after Thanksgiving, so those gatherings, um, the governor said, should not happen, and uh, it's a sad thing, and she recognized that, but that's the reality we face as the cases and the deaths continue to climb at an unruly rate here in New Mexico. In addition, not essential businesses starting Monday, that's when the reset takes place starting Monday, non-essential businesses cannot do in-person activities. So for restaurants, for instance, curbside pickup uh, delivery, that is still a possibility, but we're back to not being able to go to most stores uh, to do shopping. Uh, And again, the busy holiday season. Those things will need to happen at just a few select places that are allowed and deemed essential. Grocery stores, that sort of a thing. So big news today. I think a lot of us saw it coming. Just looking at the cases, we have broke records. Uh, Not just broke, but shattered records this week, both for numbers of cases and for deaths. And so it was reaching a critical mass, and the governor took those steps today. We'll be talking a lot more about that in the next few weeks. But uh, we'll jump into what we had for the show. As you heard in the open this morning, we've got a lot on elections and the aftermath, the impacts. And we're going to kick things off this week with uh, the line opinion table. We are, of course, still doing most of our show via Zoom remotely, as is the rest of the world. This week, we wanted a bit of a sense of return to normalcy and For us, that just meant that that we were going to get back to having four guests instead of three. We wanted to see how that would go. seems to go pretty well, and we're thrilled with the group we were able to dip our toes in the water on that with. 
So joining us this week, regular Sophie Martin. We've also got Diane Snyder, former state senator. Ed Perea, who is a public safety analyst and a former police officer and an attorney. And we welcome back to the show former Lieutenant Governor Diane Dennis. Always love to have her at the table, uh, even virtually, with her opinions and her experience. So it's a great group. We wanted to get a little bit more of a feeling for them about uh, President-elect Joe Biden, what his win might mean for some key New Mexico figures. We're talking about potential cabinet positions, uh, appointments, things that we'll see in the coming weeks uh, and months here. But a lot of names being bantied about there. But we kick things off as they talk about sort of reaction to it. Of course, the president, uh, Donald Trump, has not conceded the race yet. There are still tons of legal battles that he has initiated around the integrity of the election. Nothing has been borne out or proven at this point. And uh, so we wanted to start by asking them if the time has come to move ahead and put the election behind us and look towards the transition. Here now, Gene Grant and the line with that discussion. Election season isn't quite over. Of course, we knew it would take a while to count votes in this pandemic, no problem there. And while we have a winner, it's going to take a few weeks for everyone to acknowledge that winner. Where does that leave us in the meantime? We're asking the line. We've got two special guests this week. Former Lieutenant Governor Diane Dennish is back with us. It's been a while. We've also got Ed Perea. He's a lawyer and public safety analyst. Thanks for being here, Ed, always. We've also got two familiar faces at the virtual table, former state senator and another line regular, Diane Snyder. And last but not least, certainly attorney and line regular Sophie Martin. Now, a couple of pieces from the New York Times are worth thinking about. First, the paper contacted election officials in every state and found no voter fraud is happening either at all or on any scale meaningful enough to make a difference. And second, a plea for standardized vote counting by a law school professor who says different ways of counting and reporting the vote create a huge hole for bad information to spread. And Sophie, do you think the nation, let me start with the second part there. Sophie, do you think the nation should, should standardize how vote counting is reported to the public? I don't think it's a bad idea, frankly. Mm -hmm. This is uh, this particular election has really highlighted for a lot of us how much uh, anxiety and, um, but also gamesmanship is created by the way that we count our votes today. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know whether I, I think the states would agree to it. And that's really the first step, right, is, is um, in our in our governmental structure, that's not something that can necessarily be dropped on states from on high because it, it does implicate our constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Snyder, you know, a lot of folks feel like, you know, if we standardize how votes are counted and reported, importantly, many people say the strength of the U.S. election system is that states administer the election, as Sophie just mentioned, instead of the federal agency. It's not hard to imagine how that could go wrong if you think about it a little bit. Does that give you a little bit of uh, agita, as they say? Well, not really. Okay. Um, um, I was in the Senate during redistricting. Mm -hmm. So uh, that I think does belong with the states. And I've always been a states rights person uh, in, in, in feeling and thought and philosophy. Mm -hmm. But this, uh, the thing that I found so striking, and I talked to a lot of my very conservative friends that aren't real familiar like all of us are with the election process and the counting of votes. And if you're just Joe Blow's citizen, 
and you look, and, and I'm just going to use Pennsylvania and Georgia, if you look at those where from the, at the first, the president was so far ahead, and then all of a sudden, votes kept coming in and coming in and coming in, and it turned, changed to their, I, I can't remember whether he's ahead or not, neither one of them, but uh, they're a very small difference, less than one percentage point difference. But I think people who don't understand that process of the difference between rural votes and metropolitan area votes, they could be easily led to believing that there's been nefarious goings on. Is that part um, of, the, is that the media's fault, Senator? Did we not explain uh, things clearly enough about how this all works at the beginning? I don't, no, and we never have. It's not just this year's uh, right. vote. I think the only year where we really heard and finally understood was 2000, because we all know what a hanging chad is or a nipple chad or all of those kinds of things because of that election. The only thing about it is you look at, it was in, in 2000, it was 31 days from election day to the day we formally had a president-elect. Mm -hmm. both, both candidates filed lawsuits and went on and on and on. But the, but the world, including the United States, sat and waited for 31 days to mm -hmm. find out who's gonna be the president-elect. And this is not uncommon. Uh, one of the people who I think is a go-getter is Stacey Abrams uh, from Georgia. Right. But when she ran for governor in 2018, she did not concede for 11 days because even though uh, her Republican opponent had been ahead the whole time because she thought there had been some uh, voter, voter disincentive going on. Mm -hmm. and let me, let me, I'm going to jump in, Senator, real quick. I want to be able yeah. to get Ed in, 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 uh, sure. Lieutenant Governor here real quick. We're just a little tight on time. Uh, Ed, you know, the post office, I use that word agido once again. Uh, you know, the post office found itself in a bit of a jam, didn't it? But Folks trust the post office. It polls that way a, a lot. Uh, does the post office need to do something different? Uh, or again, we need to explain this a little bit better. What, what's the, the disconnect here between folks who didn't quite get that, look, the, la the first people that voted are the last people counted in a mail-in vote system. It, it just something didn't quite connect there. Gene, I, I think a big part of the problem this election cycle was that the post office became politicized. Yeah. People can talk about the post office and, and, and the delivery of mail. Most people, as you mentioned, are generally satisfied with the postal services. But as a result of the politicization of politics and, the, and, and everything that was taking place with this election cycle, I think uh, it, it drew a lot of caution and concerns amongst your average person politically, depending on which side you, you fell on. Uh, and I think both sides uh, had some distrust uh, of the post office, and they tended to look at the post office's services with somewhat of a jaundice eye and, and discomfort. So uh, I think in the future, uh, if the post office can remain uh, apolitical, as I think they have, uh, I think people will regain that trust. But uh, again, this election cycle was a little bit unique, and uh, there are probably certain things that need to be addressed to ensure that they are able to rebuild that trust. Gotcha. Lieutenant Governor, I got a question for you, and I want everyone to kind of uh, join in on this. A tradition holds in politics that sometimes when you have competent people, they're going to be tagged to come join the party in Washington. And perhaps the rumors out there about our governor, uh, our Deb Holland, 
for Interior Secretary, we've got notes of Martin Heinrich, Senator Heinrich as Interior Secretary, Senator Udall now, uh, ex-Senator Udall as, where do you see the pieces sort of falling? First things first, it, do you think the governor has a chance to really become part of the Biden uh, situation? And should she, if in fact she gets tagged to do so? Well, thanks so much for putting me on the spot like that, Gene. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But I do want to say one thing about the voting. I think the Please. media did a really good job of encouraging people to put their votes in the mail early. So I think that's one thing that the media did. It was very helpful in this election to put those absentee ballots in. But let me just say, first of all, I'm so excited that three people from New Mexico are really the only names in consideration to be Department of Interior Secretary and we have uh, so very viable expertise. And it says something about how New Mexico approaches the land and the conservation of the land. So um, whether or not the president-elect will choose two cabinet secretaries from New Mexico, I think is probably questionable. Uh, I think it's a very hard calculus on behalf of the governor to make a decision to leave in the middle of her first term, mm -hmm. especially in the middle of a crisis that she's well qualified to handle and that she's wrangling with right in the middle, but she certainly would fit the role that she's being considered for um, at the Health and Human Services Department. But we do have these great opportunities for New Mexico once again to be a shining star. And uh, Deb Holland, I understand, is moving right up there. She's got 120 tribal leaders who have written letters on her behalf to yep. be interior secretary. And certainly Tom Udall has a family history and the resume of uh, being an, uh, qualified to be interior secretary. So it's an exciting time for New Mexico in the middle of all the chaos. Mm -hmm. You know, Sophie, you know, speculation is one thing. It's, it's just, it happens all the time. We can think back to when Governor Richardson almost had that commerce position that didn't quite work out. We've well, been down I, this. I, I remember that, Gene. I, I, I bet you do. <laughs> well, that makes the point. You know, when, when a chess piece moves on the board, other pieces move as well. And Sophie, if in fact it's Mr. Heinrich, that, that for Interior Secretary, that would open up a whole interesting set of dominoes falling over that would be fascinating on, on a lot of levels. First of all, being the governor appointing someone to uh, replace yeah. him in, in, that, in that position as well. Riff on that if you would. Again, we're just speculating, but you never know well, on one these of things. The things. One of the things that I think that um, makes New Mexico and New Mexico's um, you know, potential cabinet secretary so appealing, besides the expertise, besides the, you know, the everything that they bring to the table, is that there is no doubt that if a position in the federal government opens, meaning a, a Senate seat or a Congress seat opens up the replacement will be appointed by a Democrat. So unlike say Elizabeth Warren out in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. where if she left the Senate, um, her replacement would be appointed by a Republican. Here, President-elect Biden can look at New Mexico and say, it's actually pretty safe, all things considered, to select somebody from this state, knowing that the new leadership to replace them, the new person to replace them will be a Democrat. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's an important element. Certainly Martin Heinrich has built his political career on, um, on sort of balancing the progressive politics um, you know, in our communities with an appreciation for an understanding of the great outdoors and the necessity to protect our natural heritage. Um, so I think I think all three of those candidates are 
are extraordinarily strong and would represent New Mexico well. Um, and it's it's going to come down to a bunch of things, right? Maybe even some some considerations that we're not thinking about for the Biden camp. But right. um, but absolutely, I think that issue of will we lose a Senate seat, will we lose a House seat, has to be really important in this conversation. Good point there. Again, all speculation, but you never know. We're out of time on our election chat. We're continuing the conversation next, though, with an expert on conflict and crisis during an election. There's no doubt a contentious election, still contentious in the days after the election. And there were concerns. Luckily, most of that has not borne out, but concerns about violence as people uh, were upset either way about the results of the election and how things were handled. Of course, that's still a possibility and something we'll be keeping a close eye on, but we hope that doesn't happen. But we wanted to talk to an expert on conflict elections. Uh, These are generally things we talk about in other countries, not here in the United States, but that is a good qualification for what this election was. So this week uh, we are joined by Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld, who has done a lot of work in this area. Uh, You'll hear about her expertise and her background here in this interview with correspondent Russell Contreras. But she looks at these issues, she considers what goes into the conflict around these elections and what we can glean from the recently completed 2020 election. Here now is that interview. Again, correspondent Russell Contreras and our guest, Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld, who uh, happens to be a resident of Santa Fe as well, so local connection. Rachel, thank you for joining us on New Mexico in Focus today. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, your work with the Carnegie Endowment for National Peace focuses on violence, social change, and conflict, Um, and you've had a global focus. Before we get into the 2020 elections, can you tell me what does it mean when you say political violence or election violence? Sure, it's a great question. So when we look at this question overseas, what we're looking at are people who are using force, not just uh, actual violence, but intimidation or the threat of violence, to influence who has a say in the political process. So it can be at an election, but it can also be at a protest. It can also be um, whether they have the right to free speech or are worried that if a journalist speaks, they'll be shut down or even killed. So the basic idea is uh, the use of intimidation or force to, to quiet people who need to speak in a democracy. And as the 2020 election uh, approach, How did you decide to work together with Amanda Ripley on a guide for journalists to cover um, conflict elections, especially here in the United States of all places? Sure, so internationally, the idea that journalists have a real civic role to play in taking the temperature down, reporting in a way that doesn't add to conflict is very well known. You see that in other countries, but we don't see that here. It's just not a way that journalists think about their role in the United States. And what we were seeing was that the same kinds of conflictual dynamics, high polarization, um, people arming themselves, a lot of because of COVID actually, a lot of arms being bought by first time users because of the coronavirus, but nevertheless worrisome signs we were starting to see in the United States. And I was on a press call uh, where I was explaining the worries and also the ways that we were not so worried. And afterward got lots of calls from journalists where I 
recognize the language they were using was exactly the wrong way to talk about it. If we were overseas, it was just what would ignite the problem. And so Amanda Ripley, who's a fabulous journalist, and I said, you know, let's just sit down, take the best practices we know from overseas, import them to the US and help our friends in the US media community understand the role they have to play here and how well they can play it. And I have to say they've done an amazing job so far. What are the hallmarks of election conflict for you? So um, you see a lot of politicians trying to uh, use their base, use intimidation to scare people. Um, we saw some of this before our election during the presidential debate where President Trump told the Proud Boys, a white supremacist kind of gang, to uh, what was a stand by, a stand, stand back and stand by, a very equivocal language that they took in a way that was positive for them. Um, so you see that kind of language overseas. You see people upping the ante on social media, kind of posturing on social media, but that normalizes violence. It makes it seem like something that should be normal in our discourse. It's not. I mean, if you look at American Americans across the political spectrum, the vast, vast majority decry violence. They don't want to see it in their election. They don't want to see it in our political process. You only have about three or four percent on both on either side, about the same on either side saying that it's at all justified. So the goal is to really say, look, those are fringe views. They're going to exist. Any country with this many people is going to have a fringe, but let's not normalize it. Let's not bring it into the mainstream or um, allow it to be seen as more mainstream by our coverage of it. Bring out the Proud Boys. And so one of the things I, I, I wanted to, that gets me as interesting is that you've had this critical eye for a global perspective and researching so many developing democracies. Um, how has this come back to the United States, especially when we also have a history of political violence, especially in the American South against people of color? I'm thinking um, the turn of the century from um, even a hundred years ago, right after Red Summer, African-Americans faced violence just for the act of registering to vote. Have you made any parallel connections with the history of the United States and what you see in emergency, uh, emerging uh, democracies? Absolutely, I mean, what we see is America thinks of itself as this extremely old democracy, the oldest in the world. And we are, on the one hand, we're the oldest democracy still standing, the oldest constitution, absolutely. But we have never fully integrated a major portion of our population, the African-American portion of the population, and to a lesser but significant extent, the Native American portion of our population, which have also had troubles voting. Um, and so, you know, we fought a war over it in the mid 1800s. That's a precursor. You always look for places where there's been political violence in the past to predict it in the future. We did have a civil war uh, that didn't resolve the problem. Very quickly, we had reconstruction and a turning back of the tide of, of African-American voting where you had all these registered voters and then you had almost none. And it, that lasted through the 60s. And so when I speak about this to um, a lot of democratic off, uh, small d democratic people who are interested in democracy, I say, look, we're the oldest democracy in the world. On the other hand, we're actually no older than a lot of the new democracies that are decolonizing in the 60s or that are just coming to democracy in the 60s when we had a major wave of democratizing overseas, because we too are just learning how to integrate major parts of our population. And that fissure is still there. And if you look at where suppression and so on happens, it's still along that same fissure. So in that way, we look a lot more like, say, a Northern Ireland or a South Africa, a highly developed country, a democracy, but nonetheless one that's divided and that needs to learn now how to deal with that divide. 
Now you came up with 10 things that US journalists can learn from colleagues who've covered conflicts in other countries. What are some of those key points? So I think one of the big ones is to humanize that when you report on the other side as uh, sort of demonic people that can't be understood, it, it really helps um, individuals, it enables violence by helping people separate themselves from the humanity of the other side. A lot of our media stories cover humanization simply by covering um, a very small personal story, but not connecting it to their beliefs. That's also not particularly helpful. What's useful is to say, here's what the other side is, and here's what they actually believe, and here's why. When you do that, you, you start to recognize that we are all Americans. We're all stuck in the same country. One hopes stuck in the same country for a long time. And we need to figure out where we actually disagree where we have different precursors but have levels of agreement and where we can start finding those areas to come together. So humanization, super important. I've already talked about denormalizing violence. There's also the um, importance of being really precise in how one talks about groups that are using violence. So instead of saying a far right group or a far left group to say uh, the Proud Boys or Antifa, is important because a lot of the left, of course, disavows Antifa, really doesn't like what they're doing. A lot of the right thinks very poorly of the Proud Boys. There's no reason to kind of normalize. So very precise language. Um, and you know, there were a slew of others I'm happy to go through. Now, at the time of this taping, many um, media outlets had called the presidential race for Joe Biden, and there's still some outstanding races across the country. When you look back, how did, the US news outlets do in light of these lessons that um, you have talked about, what kind of grade would you give us? So um, I sit on the National Task Force for Election Crises, and this is a bipartisan group. It includes people like Jim Baker, and it includes people who audit elections for a living. And um, we've all been talking a lot to the press. And as a task force, we were speaking frequently with the six major outlets that call elections and sharing these points with them and so on. I think they did wonderfully, honestly. I think they did really, really good. Um, maybe I'd give them a B plus. Um, I'm perhaps an easy grader, but I think they, they did very well given the difficulties of the situation and how fast they had to learn. Um, one of the things that Amanda and I wrote about was the importance of always including the denominator that you always say, here's how many votes have, have come in, not just uh, the state is leaning red or leaning blue because we expected a blue shift because of the number of absentee ballots that had been asked for by Democrats. What we were expecting was a lot more red uh, coloring in a state on the day of, but small numbers reporting. And we were worried that that would bring up the temperature. People would feel that the election was being taken as they, the absentee ballots got counted. That did happen to some extent, but because the press was so good at Literally, in some cases, like Fox News actually put the number, you know, 80% of the ballots are in, 75% are in. You could really uh, get a sense of just how far along they were. Um, and so, yeah, I think they did an extremely good job of uh, making sure the American people were ready to know that they were not going to get results on election night, that that was not a crisis, that there was no need for those results, that um, the process has gone pretty uh about as well as we could possibly hope, honestly, you know, despite all of the chaos that's being created by the narrative that the White House largely has been behind. Um, this was a very free, fair, easy election. We didn't even see the long lines that we've seen 
at past elections because so many people voted early. Um, we saw very few technical glitches also because the voting early helped work that out. So in a way, this was a, a real powerhouse of an election that went extremely well and the media helped with that. Now you're bringing back my grad school days because if I got a B plus in any grad school class, I went to the professor and said, all right, thank you for my B plus. How can I get an A? Where are the areas of we that we can improve? Because I'm not satisfied with this B plus. You know, I want perfection. Where can we improve? Well, I think now there needs to be a little more situation of, of where we are now. Uh, I think the media is confused about how to report on this current period for good reason. Uh, it's a difficult period that we're in. We've never had a president refuse to concede when the states look pretty clear. So I think again, setting a denominator, even if every single legal challenge broke Trump's way, he would still not win. Um, and just trying to calm people that it is fine to let this process play out. We have a legal process and it is correct to let it play out. But th the people have spoken, they spoke in an unprecedented number. Um, we haven't had returns like that in the last hundred years. That's great for democracy. I just think um, the press could do a better job now of, of letting the American public see that this was a real win for them, that they came out on all sides across all demographics and different kinds of voting. And um, they voted, they made their voice heard, it was heard. This was a very free and fair election. Two groups of international observers that President Trump okayed have said it was a great election. Um, and you know, so, so a little more of that and a little less of covering the ins and outs of a president who's having real trouble letting go. Now, violence comes up several times in your guide. Um, since the civil rights movements, we're not used to broad violence after modern elections here in the U.S. Unfortunately, should we expect a change in that? Uh, you know, what is the forecast? So I think this election was also very encouraging for that. We did have, I was on a group of people monitoring traffic to look for far left violence, far right violence problems. And we did have a number of individuals, you know, were a nation of over 300 million people, that is not to be unexpected. Um, but the law enforcement handled them very well. I'd say that the protesters and individuals who uh, were mobilized on, on both sides handled themselves very well. Um, and in general, this was extremely peaceful aftermath to a quite contested and um, hot election, which is great. And so I think that if Americans can get through the next couple of weeks of difficulty we're actually on a glide path toward healing. And I think we need to heal. There are people who are mobilized toward anger and they're being mobilized both by uh, conspiracies like QAnon, by foreign adversaries and by the media bubbles that we all live in. And we need to take a real step out of that and think that we are all in this country together. We are not having another civil war and we need to figure out how to manage our differences and not let them further separate us because we need our country to be governable. We talked a lot, a lot about media accountability, but what is the role of the public? Is there a media literacy aspect for this, uh, for the public? And are there relatively simply re simple reminders that citizens can give themselves in the process of, of this um, fragmented news cycle? That's a terrific question. So at the National um, Task Force and other groups like it, we've been saying, you know, look at credible news sources. This is hard because I have a five-year-old. I'm trying to teach her how to do research on the internet. You know, what is a credible source? We're motivated to find things that prove our points. 
and um, the algorithms on Facebook and so on are motivated to send us to things that further our beliefs that we already have. So it's important to get out of those bubbles, but long-standing media sources that have been around a long time are important. If you don't know where your media is coming from, be skeptical. There are foreign adversaries that are trying to plant media and there's just people who are misinformed, frankly. They might not be intentionally problematic, but they're just passing on the stories that reinforce what they like. I remember one that came to me was about Trump's mother. This was in 2016, Trump's mother saying that uh, she always said he should never be president. Well, you know, you get, a, you get a note like that and you think, well, what mother would, first of all, say that ahead of time about their kid? It just didn't ring true. You have to double check things that um, prove your, your point too much. So yes, there's a need for media literacy. The country that's done this best, frankly, is Finland. Finland, because they were on the edge of the Soviet Union and for so long they were targeted by the Soviets for misinformation that the body politic, the citizenry there, just got extremely good at uh, being aware of where they were getting their news. And now America needs a little bit more of that too, a little more um, healthy skepticism and outreach to the other side. Rachel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, it's been a real pleasure. And Dr. Kleinfeld gave us a few extra minutes we just didn't have time for in the show. So we'll pick things back up with her conversation with Russell, really talking about how sometimes the past would tend to tell us that violence is the only way in protest to make actual change. Of course, this uh, argument, this debate goes back to Dr. Martin Luther King and some of his differences with uh, other uh, African-American leaders in the civil rights movement. And uh, Dr. Kleinfeld has studied this issue a lot and has some really interesting perspective on all of that. So we'll turn it back over to her and Russell Contreras now. Rachel, thank you for joining us uh, for this web extra. We really appreciate it. Um, you've talked and written about nonviolent resistance that can be the most successful drivers of social change if the message is broad and it appeals to enough people. How does the Black Lives Matter and the protest after the murder of George Floyd and the shooting of Jacob Blake seem to you through that lens? So the tragic deaths of George Floyd and so many other um, African-Americans in this country have, uh, if there's been any possible silver lining, finally helped many other Americans understand the, um, the, the incredibly unequal justice that this country has meted out for a long time. And that is good because what we see from overseas is that when you really have success as a social movement, you do two things. You have a broad base of people that's about numbers, but it's also about um, crossing silos. So in our country, that would mean black and white. That would mean Native American and um, rural and urban and uh, people who are democratic and people who are Republican. The reason that that kind of broad base matters is that it's not just about numbers. In highly polarized societies, which is where you see that kind of highly unequal justice system, in highly polarized societies, if you have a narrative that only reaches your side of the polarized divide, your narrative will be dismissed by the other side and you will not break through and you will not succeed. So what social movements have to do is create narratives that bridge those divides and that makes them bigger, but it also means that they can be heard. And what we saw after George Floyd's death was for the first time a narrative about 
inequity and the problems in our justice system finally breaking through to many whites who hadn't believed it before. And that's a real source of hope. Now, I was in Kenosha earlier this year, right after um, the city was hit with riots and I could still smell the fire And when I got there. And I kept thinking about uh, Milan Kundera's novels about Czechoslovakia during the communist occupation. And I was hit with this existential crisis, this question for me, that sometimes violence is inevitable to fight systemic inequality. Is that fair? I mean, it's, it's something that really struck me. Is violence sometimes the only answer to, to systemic inequality, to overthrow it? Or, you know, or is, is that just a cynical view from our 20th century Marxism and capitalism's Cold War dichotomy? Well, what the research shows, and here I'm drawing on Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, who are really the, the um, most able researchers. Erica's now at, at Harvard and has gone on to do just a plethora of research on this, is that uh, violent, violent protest fails far, far more often than nonviolent protest. And she's um, categorized this across the 20th century, uh, done the numbers, and she's also done the deeper research, the case studies and so on. And what she's found is that it's not just that it fails systemically, um, it's that it fails for a reason. And the reason is that as your protests become more violent, you lose that broad base that I was talking about before. So, you know, I'm a mother of two kids. I believe strongly in a lot of progressive social change, but I also wanna keep my kids alive. So if a, a protest becomes violent, I'm not gonna go out to it anymore. And that's what happens to a lot of people. As, as violence starts happening, what you start getting is um, a shrinking of the people willing to protest. That shrinking allows the security services and also the people in um, power to isolate the protesters, to create counter narratives against them, and um, to, to arrest more of them, to silence more of them, because there's fewer of them, and to uh, create wedge strategies against it. So when you, when you create violence as part of your protest, you lose a lot of not just the moral high ground, but the actual people who are enabling you to succeed. And that is uh, unfortunate. And it's unfortunate, particularly for people who uh, feel so strongly about this cause that they think, well, I'll just commit some property violence. Um, because even property violence has this effect of uh, polarizing and narrowing the other side. People feel property violence as violence against uh, violence against them themselves in a certain way. So it's very important and it's a very hard message for some people to take in when people are angry to be told that they're not allowed to use violence is hard for some people, but it's what all the research shows. Are you hopeful for the 2024 election that we won't be as tense as we were this time around? You know, I think um, it'll help a lot to have a more moderate voice in power but I'm, um, I would say I'm cautious about what happens in 2024. In, in my own research in other countries that have had a leader like Trump, which in political science parlance, we would call this an authoritarian populist leader, a populist because he's um, trying to appeal directly to the people against the institutions of democracy, basically saying, you don't need those institutions, come straight to me, I can sort of break the institutions and get things done. And an authoritarian because he wants to concentrate power in, in himself um, as well. And so that kind of anti-elite, 
concentration of power message puts him in that category. When you see other authoritarian populists in other countries, what you see is either they win twice, that's what Yasha Monk's research shows, they often win a second term. In the cases where they don't win a second term, you often get a centrist who follows. That centrist is not very satisfying to a lot of the electorate. Um, a, the side that was on the side of the authoritarian populist is kept going by the direct messaging to the people, whether it's left or right, whether you're talking about a, a Chavez in Venezuela or a Berlusconi in Italy, that direct messaging continues and, and riles up the base. And the people on the side of the elected leader feel like they're not getting what they really wanted, which was a fire and brimstone fight. You know, they wanted to bring the fight to the other side and instead they're getting more moderation often because of what we are likely to face here, which is a split Senate uh, presidential, you know, two, two different parties in power. And so they end up one termers. And then what you tend to see is a bouncing back and forth between different polarized sides. So very right, very left, very right, very left. Italy uh, perfected this by electing both the very right and the very left at the same time. And they got a, a sort of a single government that brought together their nativist party and their um, kind of far left party and the same government, which lasted for in typical Italian fashion, just a couple of years. So hopefully we will get better, but the research suggests that is not incredibly likely and that there's changes that we need to make to, uh, to change that dynamic. I really think that the ranked choice voting that Santa Fe has passed, that's in a lot of other counties in um, New Mexico are interested in, holds one key because it's a depolarizing mechanism. You don't vote uh, solely for a Democrat or Republican. You get to pick your flavor of Democrat and Republican and that allows for much more responsiveness to an electorate. Um, and that kind of structural change, if it passes in other states and moves up, can help uh, take these parties out of the, the hardest core, you know, Trumpists and, and so on and move them to something that's a little more reasonable. Rachel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. All right, we are back now with the line uh, opinion panel talking about the COVID-19 uh, outbreak in New Mexico. As we mentioned earlier, it is almost out of control here in New Mexico. Hospitals are at capacity, cases rise, deaths rise, and we're seeing what's happening around our state too in El Paso. Uh, they have extended basically a stay-at-home order as they're trying to get a handle on the situation there where they even have portable morgues set up because they cannot handle the deaths and the bodies that uh, are resulting from this outbreak. It's a very serious time. I want to make sure that we pass along to all of you our well wishes on your safety and your health. Please do the things that we know we need to do at this point to keep this disease at bay. Wear your masks, stay at home. Uh, again, we taped this segment before Governor uh, Michelle Luan Grisham made her announcement, but obviously still plenty to chew at on the state's response and why we seem to still not have the consensus we need on some of these bare basics that we all need to employ to keep COVID-19 at bay. So here again, the line panel and Gene Grant. We are entering what promises to be a very difficult holiday season. The COVID-19 pandemic is getting much, much worse. The rates of infection are up as are cases and deaths. Hospitals are overwhelmed and begging people to stay apart, wash their hands and wear a mask. 
We're gauging the government's reaction to the crisis and we're expecting changes to the public health order as we sit here and tape this on Thursday. We're seeing this on Friday night, so if it happened, you know why. Um, as, to the public health, as, as we, as a state, we, has, have we just stopped listening to the governor and the experts here? This is my, my number one question. It's a very difficult one. Sophie, let me start with you on that. We're getting some other voices in the mix now. The gov we're hearing from hospital CEOs, but the numbers, I mean, you're talking about over the weekend, uh, an extraordinary amount of cases just in a, in a couple of days. What, what is, is no one being heard anymore? What's going on here? I can speak to my own experience and, and, and I will say that I have caught myself at times having sort of categorized activities into that's a dangerous activity and that's not a dangerous activity. So mm -hmm. I'm very careful, for instance, when it comes to grocery stores, I'm not going to hair salons, things like that. Um, but, but I catch myself and sometimes the other people around me thinking, um, oh, do we need a mask? Yes, we need a mask, right? We're going to be within six feet. Oh, Oh, do I need to, with you, this person who I trust, do I, do I need to follow all of the rules? And, and, and what we're hearing is that a lot of the spread seems to be happening in family groups, mm -hmm. in social settings where people do trust each other. Yep. And so then think, okay, well, I don't have to do all of those things. Um, and, and I think that, so I, I think in some ways, it's like our idea of what we can and cannot do has solidified a little bit um, into not quite, not quite the safest set of activities. Right. Ed, again, it, it's, it's a difficulty for the governor. Uh, she, as Sophie mentioned, she has tamped on on gatherings, uh, but New Mexico is about family. You know what I mean? It, it, that's just, this is what we do. We gather in family units. How can we possibly ask folks as families to not gather for the holidays? Is that actually a reasonable ask? Eugene, that's going to be very difficult because you're right. You're right. We are a family-oriented community, a family-oriented state, and the the big holidays coming up, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. This is where families who tended not to uh, even seen each other for six months, you know, nine months. This is now their opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it, it's going to be a, a difficult decision for many people to make. But uh, ultimately, you have to ask yourself, and each family member has to ask themselves. Is this worth it? Especially if you have family members who are in some of the, the high risk categories, you know, the elderly or, or underlying conditions. And it's difficult. Uh, you know, often most people don't accept the seriousness of the problem unless it's staring them right in the face. Right. And we've seen so many stories of, of, of people coming out afterward who either had COVID and had a difficult time going through it or lost family members. And that's going to be the point that's going to be so important to get across. To, to individuals that this may be the one year that you make those sacrifices in the interest of a family. And, and you know, there may be no greater uh, thing you can do for your family other than make a sacrifice, but it is gonna be a difficult decision for many people to, to make. If I can jump in and Please. add to Ed's list of, of you know, what's coming up in the next couple of months, it's not just Thanksgiving and Christmas. We also have a large number of feast days that are that actually have started right um and and that is a very significant period you know for our tribal communities the the feast day is in many ways about coming together as a family as an extended family and so that that is also a real concern mm -hmm. and we see the, what the numbers are doing on the Navajo nation as well so uh, to make that point uh, lieutenant governor uh santa fe and rio rancho have abandoned their their uh return to school efforts even on a hybrid basis it's interesting but something caught my eye in the journal that one line from sue cleveland and rio rancho stuck out 
She said many students were planning to travel during the holidays and, you know, <laughs> I, you know, people are talking, they're going, they're making plans. I'm hearing from friends saying, oh, I'm buying these super cheap airline tickets. It's so easy to travel right now. And, and is there any one person that can say, don't do this, <laughs> that everyone will listen to? Well, let me just say, I think one of the good things about the election coming to a conclusion is some of the nationally known health experts are starting to be more instructive about ways to, if you are going to have a family gathering, if you are going somewhere, how to do it as safely as possible, understanding that some people will make those decisions. I couldn't agree with more with what Sophie said is we all make a risk assessment about what's safe for us or who we trust. And I think we've all found ourselves in that situation where we say, oh, well, they're my friend and I know they haven't been doing anything. And so you can take off your mask. Mm -hmm. uh, but we need to set those norms aside and say, every time you're talking to somebody, you need to socially distance, you need to be wearing your mask, you don't need to be hugging. Uh, and it's, it's hard because uh, we are a very friendly, family-friendly state. Uh, we have these children in schools that, um, that need places to go and uh, teachers are becoming infected and we have all kinds of things. I think the governor has been extremely resolute in trying to be instructive about what we need to do. And uh, I think with the change and with the national election coming to conclusion and more encouragement from national experts and the president elect and other people it'd be much easier for everybody to adopt a collective approach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting point there. Just to very quickly. Go ahead, Ed. Mm -hmm. Can we just, you know, hang on, there's the vaccine that's been announced. This may be temporary. This may be the one holiday that maybe we need to make some of those sacrifices because the uh, this vaccine that's been announced is a game changer. And, and so this, can we just hang on as a community might be the message that we to put out there. I'm glad you brought up Pfizer. I'm yeah. going to bring in Senator into this. Sorry, Sophie, my fault there. Um, you know, obviously the news exploded. 90% is like an amazing number to hear about. And I got to wonder if, if, if somehow the announcement of this vaccine uh, even though we don't know anything about its availability at this point, might have incentivized a lot of people to go, oh, well, heck, there's a vaccine on the way. I guess we can kind of relax a little bit. Do you get that sense at all, or, or, or are you hearing something else out there when it, when it comes to the vaccine? I truthfully haven't talked to many people about it other than the, the political side of it, which I'm not going to go into today. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I have done a little in-depth reading about it and a couple of the things that are still questions that they don't know about. I mean, I think it's marvelous that we have it. It's a step forward for everybody in, in the world, not just the United States. But a question that struck me is they don't know how long the inoculation period will last. Mm -hmm. it, you know, flu shot, uh, shots you have to get every year. Right. And the second major question that struck me is they don't know, have any data on Will it work as well for both young people and the elderly right. or just for one group or the other? So I think that, yes, people are going in their own minds because we're so tired. We're just so tired right. at, that we want something to be good. And so I think that there will be, oh, well, it'll be all right. We'll, we'll just have 10 people for Thanksgiving dinner instead of five. 
And I think that is happening. But I, I, I just want to say one quick thing. I'm one of a very small minority of people in our state. I have to go out of state for health treatments twice a year. And I have to go to Texas, which is wow. one of our worst states. But I have no choice about going. And so I, I, I'm very, and, and I will congratulate the airlines. They have done a marvelous job, at least the ones I've been on at separating you at doing everything, cleaning, doing those kinds of things. So I applaud them for that, but I'm still in that I'm, I'm frightened when I go, even though I have confidence because I have a 94 year old mother that lives with me. So is very vulnerable to, so coming back, my court and, and the governor made it where we didn't have to quarantine in the second round that she said if, for coming back. But I did, I was careful about where I went and what I did, but bringing it back to someone in my home is also very frightening. But there are some of us out there that have to travel. We don't have a choice. That's right. So a vaccine mm -hmm. sounds like pure heaven to us. Yeah, so, I, pre I, pre I appreciate that. That is a point. Some folks do have to travel. You're quite right. And a reminder again, we're taping this on Thursday midday. So if this sounds just a little bit off the beat compared to what you heard from the governor earlier this morning, meaning Friday morning, uh, about the next steps. We apologize for that, but that's the, what happens in television. Now we're back for one more segment in a few minutes talking Albuquerque police. It's the second Friday of the month, and that is a very special time here at New Mexico in Focus. It's our land time. That's our environmental series, New Mexico's environmental past, present, and future with correspondent Laura Pascas, familiar face for sure, familiar voice, and we are taking a look back at uh, a trip we took right around a year ago, almost exactly, down to southern New Mexico and along the Mexican border uh, to look at the border wall. Of course, this was a key part of President Trump's immigration policy, uh, building out the border wall. A lot of that is happening and did happen here in New Mexico. But one of the things a lot of people probably don't think about is what impact that has on the environment and in particular wildlife in and around that border wall area. And so we wanted to head down south and, and get a feel and a look for that and talk to folks who know more about what those impacts are and what damage that might be doing to the ecosystem down there. So we want to revisit our trip at the border with Laura Paskus on our land. Along the U.S.-Mexico border in southern New Mexico, there's not a river or landforms that divide the two countries. It's the same Chihuahuan desert, the same connected aquifers beneath soil and stone, the same creatures leaving their prints behind in the sand. We know there are a lot of species out here because we've set out wildlife cameras and, and we've captured videos and, and photos of them. The images collected by the Southwest Environmental Center include mountain lions, bobcats, javelinas, deer, coyotes, and foxes. Not only does this wall break up the visual landscape, for the animals that live in this vast Chihuahuan desert, it poses an existential threat. 
Wild animals need to move across the landscape to be able to get to the food and the water and the mates that they need to survive and for their kind to survive into the future. This is a classic case of habitat fragmentation. And biologists know that when you fragment habitat, you divide populations of wild animals into smaller populations. And the smaller the population of wild animals, the more likely it is to disappear. And when enough of those populations disappear, the species goes extinct. The desert here is quiet. But in the past two years, construction workers have been erecting 30-foot-tall steel bollards, costing more than $20 million a mile. In some places, the 30-foot wall replaces an 18-foot wall. In others, the border has been nothing but barbed wire fences and vehicle barriers. Kevin Bixby moved here 30 years ago. At that time, the border was a barbed wire fence to keep cattle from crossing the international boundary. There really was no wall here to speak of. Uh, what there was was uh, these vehicle barriers that are maybe four or five feet tall. Really no problem for wildlife to get through. When people say that this administration has not built any new wall, it's not correct. For centuries, people moved across this landscape too, to trade, travel, follow wildlife, migrate with the seasons, to build lives on either side of a line, a line in the desert agreed upon by two countries. Angelica Rubio is a state lawmaker. She represents the city of Las Cruces. I was born and raised in the southeastern part of the state, and um, my parents are actually from the Marfa Presidio area. And so for us, the borderlands has always been a big part of who we are as, as my, not only my family, but also our community. And the same can be said about Las Cruces and the South Valley, where um, so many of the smaller communities leading into El Paso have been a part of generations-long uh, binational communities that have lived together for a very, very long time. But America began to militarize its southern border, even before the election of Donald Trump in 2016, when the U.S. started granting contracts, each worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And the Trump administration began waiving environmental protection laws for the construction. When 45 was elected into office a couple years ago, people assumed that the wall was barely going to be built. But what people don't realize is that this part of the region has been heavily militarized for a very long time. Over the course of Clinton's administration, the Bush administration, and even under the Obama administration, we have seen barriers go up. There are checkpoints throughout southern New Mexico, and border patrol agents in towns and cities to Rubio, this makes people in southern New Mexico feel like they are always surrounded by walls. And myths have arisen around the border with Mexico. I feel that this narrative that this border is insecure and that this border is dangerous is really built on fear from those who are not from here. Pushing back against these divisive narratives about immigration and the landscape has brought some New Mexicans closer together. 
after the election in 2016, there was a lot of unlikely allies, um, many allies who had worked in silos for a very long time, who came together not only to address issues around human rights, but also to address issues around the protection of our public lands and our wildlife. And we all came together to really think through what was our strategy moving forward and how do we further protect this very diverse area from a wall that is very much going to be destructive to our land and to our wildlife. Even if immigration policies change in the coming years, the wall will still be a scar. It will still stand here in the desert, in the desert that looks just the same on either side of the border. Worldwide, we're facing this uh, global extinction crisis where we're losing populations and species of, of wildlife and we're losing intact ecosystems everywhere. And uh, as, as one scientist has said, we're we're busy sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. Uh, you know, our, our fate as a species really depends on maintaining the biological diversity of this world. And walls don't help anyone, Bixby says. I think it's important for people who don't live here to understand that, first of all, there is no crisis. Secondly, the border wall causes harm to wildlife and the environment. And that's, this is, this is my home, and this is the home of people that live along the border, and it's the home of the wildlife that lives here. And the border wall is not good for any of us. For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Paskus. And while we have Laura Paskus, we couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk to her about her latest report for our special investigative project, Groundwater War. This is in conjunction with PBS's Frontline. And if you've been paying attention, it, this uh, entire investigation has to do with PFAS contamination at military installations in New Mexico. Most of our coverage has been around Cannon and Holloman Air Force bases, where these toxic chemicals have been found in the groundwater. In the case of Cannon, nearby Clovis, they've actually found traces of it in water wells there that feed the city water uh, drinking water system. Those wells have been shut down, but uh, still a lot of work to be done to figure out exactly how far these chemicals have spread and what the mediation process will be. In her most recent researching and investigating on this, found out that uh, Fort Wingate, which is over uh, near Gallup and Grants in western New Mexico, is listed by the Pentagon as a site of potential PFAS contamination. And in the midst of all that, the state is working on a consent decree with the military over toxic chemicals and um, the dumping of them there at Fort Wingate, which has been shuttled now for, for many, many years. But the interesting thing about all this is that it was actually Laura Paskus uh, in her research and reporting that alerted state officials to the PFAS, possible PFAS contamination there. They did not disclose that as one of the chemicals that was a problem out there. So this continues to be an ever-growing story here in New Mexico. This is so serious because these PFAS chemicals don't easily break down, so it's very hard to clean them up, and they're tied to a whole slew of health-related issues. You can read her full report by going to the nmpbs.org website and searching for Groundwater War. There's a link 
right there on the front page. You can get caught up on the reporting she's done to date, see a map of the military installations we're talking about, look at a timeline. And also every Tuesday, she does a roundup of news on PFAS, uh, not just here in New Mexico, but around the country. And we're calling that our dispatches. And so you can check those out and get caught up on this story because it's happening here in New Mexico, but it's happening in lots of other places too. And part of what we're looking at is why the military seems to take a different approach in different states to how they're dealing with this issue. So we encourage you to go read her full reporting, especially this most recent report. But here's a little bit more and a taste of what you'll read when you head there. Hi, I'm Matt Grubbs, NMIF producer, and I'm here with Laura Paskus, who has been working on another Our Land-related project. It's our groundwater war investigation into toxic chemicals that have been found um, beneath and around military installations in New Mexico. Laura, specifically, we've been focusing on Cannon and Holloman Air Force bases, but that list has expanded. Can you talk a little bit about what you found? Sure, there are five other installations on the list now. We covered some of this way back in March and um, again over the summer, but right now I feel like the big story is there are these five other facilities. There's um, one in Rio Rancho, one in Roswell, Santa Fe, um, White Sands Missile Range, and also Fort Wingate out near Gallup. And so these five sites are being investigated to see if they may have contaminated local water with PFAS, perm polyfluoroalkyl substances. And what we know right now is not very much. The Air Force over the next year or two will be doing those tests and hopefully sharing that information with the state and the public. Uh, kind of the overarching theme uh, of your reporting this year seems to be that there's an impact uh, of having a military or a federal presence here in New Mexico. We get a lot of good things, but there are some bad things too. You went out to Fort Wingate recently. This is a spot where the state is currently negotiating over environmental damages there now, but you found that there's also undisclosed PFAS possibilities? Yeah, so Fort Wingate is on the Pentagon's list. The state, the federal government, and the Zuni and Navajo tribes have been working on a consent decree, a settlement over, um, you know, basically a century's worth of pollution out there. But the parties were all moving forward with sort of, you know, decades worth of work on cleanup and negotiations, and the military had not disclosed to the state nor to the tribes that PFAS is now one of the contaminants that may be of concern at Fort Wingate. And that's uh, a concern because the cost to mitigate PFAS contamination is pretty high, right? Yeah, I mean, if, if PFAS is in the groundwater there, that is, is going to be a huge problem for, um, for whomever the landowner and the, the water users out there would be. Okay. Um, the the history of, of Fort Wingate, it, it has all sorts of contaminants out there. Um, PFAS is just one of many. Right, so the, the base which dates, or the, the depot and the military base out there dates back to the 19th century, but throughout the 20th century, there were munitions, explosives, pesticides, um, so many different things being stored out there, stored, um, transferred for, to other facilities, 
um, disassembled. It was, um, you know, there was a lot happening out there and those impacts from those, those contaminants, you know, have affected the soil, the buildings, and in some places, the groundwater. Excellent. Well, you can read all about Laura's investigation on our Groundwater War website through our NewMexicoPBS.org website. And um, also you have an interview with Maggie Hart-Stebbins, who is the state's natural resources trustee. Did I get that right? Yes. Excellent. Laura, thanks so much. Thank you, Matt. One more trip around the line table this week, and we are looking at some bad news all around for the Albuquerque Police Department. No doubt it's an embattled department, has been for years, still facing uh, a consent degree with the DOJ over um, basically all aspects of how it operates, but it stemmed particularly out of uh, police brutality cases and the number of police shootings dating back years now. The latest report from the Independent Monitor, who is keeping track of reform efforts for the DOJ, issued a pretty scathing report this week about the lack of movement on some really key issues there. We wanted to talk about that, as well as at the same time, uh, some great local reporting done out of the Albuquerque Journal about overtime that's being racked up still by Albuquerque police officers. We know that is part of the deal. Uh, When you have events and things, you need security, and APD officers will also are often step in uh, for overtime hours for that. But you've got some people here that we'll talk about that are in six digits just earned in overtime. And it's been a longstanding problem, even some cases of some fraud about that overtime where it was recorded but never actually worked. So a lot of things to tidy up still there with APD, but we wanted to get you the very latest and uh, get their reaction to what's going on with Albuquerque police. Quote, failed miserably in its ability to police itself, end quote. Those words are the assessment of the the independent monitor who oversees Albuquerque police as part of a settlement agreement the city entered way back in 2014. You'll recall that's when the U.S. Department of Justice found it had a pattern of unconstitutional policing. It's another stunning account of APD incompetence by James Ginger. He is the independent monitor. As detailed by reporter Elise Kaplan in the Albuquerque Journal, Mr. Ginger said field officers are still failing to report use of force incidents. Internal affairs investigations are perfunctory. Discipline is meager, and the union is meddling in those investigations. But wait, as they say, there's more. Just after that, Mr. Kap- uh, Ms. Kaplan reported that an overtime audit revealed two APD officers earned more than $100,000 in overtime last year, working the equivalent of two full-time jobs. That after the face of the department, Simon Drobik resigned while under investigation for getting paid for thousands of dollars worth of OT. He didn't even work. Ed Perea, I could spend the next seven minutes reading from a list of what's wrong with this department. You could too, but my word, when is this going to get cleaned up? What's, what's your sense of what's the turn that needs to be taken here from the report by Mr. Ginger? Well, APD has a real PR problem mm-hmm. on its hands, on its hands, and it's coming from a, a couple of different fronts. You know, clearly the, the reform process is being criticized by, by Mr. Ginger. Uh, after all this time, I'm, I'm sure that the, the, the city and its, and its citizens would have liked to have been much further along. Uh, but in Mr. Ginger's report, uh, he initially pointed out, he mentions leadership. 
But when he discusses, talks about leadership, it's the entire leadership hierarchy of the, of the police department. Uh, I don't think he wanted to give anyone a pass. Uh, we understand that the, uh, that the city is, is conducting, currently conducting a national search for its next chief of police. Uh, that's going to be an incredibly important selection for the city. I think right now there are there are trust issues. You know, maybe in some ways it may be fortunate uh, that the pandemic and the election has created a little bit of a distraction over public safety. But as things start to normalize, we the, the election is behind us. Uh, we get control of this pandemic. The, the focus is going to draw its attention back on APD and, and how APD is functioning as, as an organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I, I know that the, the mayor in his national search is trying to find that right person for the job, and that's going to be critical. Who do you bring in for that position? Uh, I think he's also going to have to deal with the fact that he is uh, up for re-election next year, right. and I, I'm wondering if that might chill some of those, uh, some of that applicant pool, those who might be top-notch uh, potential chiefs of police, but not want to take that that risk. So there are a few things uh, in which uh, the, the the this administration is going to have to overcome uh, in their selection of the chief of police. Gotcha. Uh, you know, I know the past search, uh, they had some high-caliber individuals who had an interest in Albuquerque and. And we hope to see an additional group of high caliber individuals. That's, a, that's an interesting point you make, though, about how the, the re-election might impact someone's decision to actually take the job or not. Uh, Sophie, these situation, this situation has spanned at least three mayors, if not a whole lot more. But how much does this land in Mayor Keller's lap? Is it more than just firing the uh, Chief Geyer? What, what, what's missing here from, from Mayor Keller's approach? Well, I mean, as you said, three different mayors. It's clear that the problems with APD are intractable. Um, that they're not political in nature in the sense that no, you know, we had a Republican mayor, we have Democratic mayor, um, but all of that said, they still do need to be addressed. They need to be corrected. And, and you know, I'm going to bring in one other news story that we saw this week relating to APD, the dismissed police officer whose DUI cases, DWI cases are now also having to be dismissed because um, they're not able to provide correct evidence for those cases. So, you know, we have the we have the sort of big picture problems with APD and then we see them coming down to just the, the basic street level um, where people expect to see effective policing, which is extraordinarily difficult to, um, to, to accomplish when you have this pattern and practices the, as, the, um, as the report says, of, of inadequate uh, supervision and inadequate training. Gotcha. Lieutenant Governor, interesting quote here from Mr. Ginger, um, which really kind of kind of frightened me, honestly. He said the department is, quote, on the brink of a catastro- of catastrophic failure, and that APD is now worse than anywhere he has ever seen in three decades of doing this kind of work. That's amazing when you think about it. It is amazing, and it, as Sophie said, these, some of these problems have spanned not just the last two mayors, but mm-hmm. uh, for decades, the police department. I think we should remember that um, one of the things that we're seeing in Albuquerque and across the country is the tension between administrations and the police unions and uh, the intractable nature of maybe 
the officers and the and the leadership really taking seriously the need for this change. Mm-hmm. It sounds like from the monitor's report, they're just going through the motions in many cases uh, when they write their reports. Mm-hmm. And um, my advice to any mayoral candidate would be do not campaign on a promise to change the police department. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. Everybody campaigns on that idea right. and brings and it just doesn't happen. Gotcha. Just got a minute here, Senator. I apologize. Uh, time's just a little tight today. Um, we constantly hear about the bad apple, quote unquote, situation. You know, the, the defense from law enforcement. Have we seen enough to say it's more than just a few bad apples? I think that perhaps the environment of the department has become harder for someone to stand up and, and file a complaint or or uh, indict a colleague. And then you go back to, I have to, uh, just one quick political thing. Mm -hmm. I think all of of this in the misconceptions and all that stuff of defunding the police, all of that has caused every uh, police department to align themselves even tighter to each other. And so they feel like it's them against the world. Fair point. as, as, as we've said, this has been going on for some time in Albuquerque, but I think right now it's gonna be a yeoman's task to try to get everybody lined up together That's to right. work at making the changes. And I remind all of us that uh, I've seen footage from back when Pete Domenici was the city manager. There were protests about the police back then. So when, I, when we say three mayors, we can, we can peel this thing way back. There will definitely be more bad APD news to report, I'm sure. There always seems to be. But I want to thank you guys for your thoughts and opinions this week for sure. Before we go uh, this week, I want to make you aware of a couple other things you can find that we've done this week. The... Um, Growing Forward podcast that we're doing in conjunction with New Mexico Political Report. It's uh, focused all about the cannabis industry in New Mexico. Uh, Really interesting project. It's such a fascinating industry and super, super complicated. We took last week off for the election. We knew everybody was going to be really uh, following every turn and twist there, but we're back this week. We had an episode out all about uh, testing and regulations around the medical cannabis program. And uh, like with most things we found with this, there's no sort of universal standard. So in Arizona, for instance, medical marijuana, there's really no testing on that at all. We are pretty stringent here in New Mexico. People feel a lot of different ways about that. But obviously, however that morphs or changes or how it exists will play a a role in uh, what happens if the legislature next year decides to legalize recreational use cannabis as well. And the clock is definitely ticking there. Um, I don't know if you saw, but right after the election, we did a special episode with Andrew Oxford, who used to report at the Santa Fe New Mexican. He's now in Arizona, where voters there approved recreational use cannabis in this year's election. So the surrounding states, you've got Colorado now, and in addition, Arizona adds the list of surrounding states that have already Legalized. It'll, of course, take a while for Arizona to get their program up and running, but a lot of people are pushing for this here in New Mexico because of the potential tax revenue, and so the clock is definitely ticking there, and that's part of why we're doing this podcast and part of the story we're trying to tell, but also helping people understand 
the issue a little better before the legislature convenes and discusses it next year. So I encourage you to go check that out. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. But all the episodes are also up on the New Mexico PBS website. That's nmpbs.org. You can just search for Growing Forward, and there's a link there on the front page as well. Also this week, of course, been talking a ton about the election, but uh, host Gene Grant did a fascinating conversation with a a great group of New Mexicans. Uh, In particular, we're talking about black women from across the state, and uh, they really are discussing the historic nature of the election when you consider we now have our first African-American vice president, who also happens to be a woman, talking, of course, about Kamala Harris. And it was just a terrific conversation, and there's no doubt there's a lot of excitement in the air uh, about that for these particular folks. Uh, Good long conversation there. We're joined by over a dozen people. Um, Just a really great conversation there. I encourage you to go check it out. You can find that on the New Mexico and Focus web page, or Facebook page. Sorry about that. And special thanks to Kathy McGill, who helped us uh, wrangle all those people and get that done. So we encourage you to go listen to that as well. We will let Gene take us out this week with some reflections on the election. Also some thoughts that I just wanted to uh, add my own to beforehand. Many of you may have seen by now of the uh, sudden death of KUNM Radio's news director, Hannah Colton. We collaborate and partner with KUNM a lot. I've had the honor and pleasure to work with Hannah a lot in the last several years. She was a passionate uh, professional. She was a dedicated journalist. She cared about the state. She cared about the people and their stories as she told them. It's a truly tragic loss, and there is a deep, deep hole in the local journalism community. Our hearts and condolences go out to everyone at KUNM, their entire staff and team, the journalism uh, environment here in New Mexico. Uh, Our hearts and thoughts go out to all of you as well. We need to take care of each other. We need to check in with each other. This goes for everybody. Encourage you to do that as well. Stay safe. Be happy. Be healthy. And we will be back again next week. So as we wait for the final, final, final results of the presidential election, I'm still thinking about how quickly the moving pieces move here politically. As you heard in our discussion earlier about the local landscape of one of our own accepts a post in the Biden administration. It's interesting to speculate, certainly. Recall Governor Bill Richardson, as I mentioned, and how a potential Gomer Secretary Post roiled the political class here. It didn't happen then, it may not happen now, but this is what happens when we have competent, ambitious men and women in positions of power in New Mexico. Someone in D.C. is going to notice. Finally this week, we want to send out our heartfelt condolences and support to our friends and family at KUNM over the loss of news director Hannah Colton. Her passing has hit us all here at New Mexico and Focus hard. Her passion and dedication were an inspiration to us all, and she'll be missed. <laughs>